This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for July 13th, 2018. In this week's episode, we'll explain how anti-malware and antivirus software works to keep your devices safe. Plus, new operating system updates from Apple. A Wi-Fi security bug gets patched, finally. And there could be a bug in how your virtual machine connects to iCloud. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. About a month ago, just before we recorded one of our episodes, I had a really weird problem. I got a notification suddenly that my Apple ID had been locked because of some sort of security thing. And at the time, I was surprised. I have two-factor authentication on, so if someone tries to sign into my Apple ID on a new device, I get an alert on all my devices. You've seen that, right, Josh? Yeah, it's a dialog box that'll pop up, and so it's it's something more than just a, a text message or something like that. It's something that's actually integrated with Apple operating systems. Right, and it shows a little map to show where the person's logging in from, and you have to tap allow, and then you have to give a six-digit code, so it's a really complicated process. But this didn't happen when when my Apple ID got locked about a month ago. Now, coincidentally, that was the day that I installed the beta of macOS Mojave in a virtual machine in VMware Fusion. A virtual machine means you create what's like a, a sort of a, a disk image with the operating system, and you can run it in an application at the same time as you're running the, the normal macOS on your computer. And that's an easy way to test an operating system when you don't have too much demanding work to, to do. So this morning, I noticed that the virtual machine for my standard macOS testing version was at 10.12. I had just never gotten around to updating it to High Sierra. It's been a long time. That shows how often I use my virtual machines. So I downloaded the latest installer, and I updated it, and boom, the same thing happened. My Apple ID got locked. So something's going on with the way VMware Fusion is trying to sign in to iCloud, but I can't figure it out. Do you have any ideas, Josh? Gosh, I don't know. That That's a tricky one. I called Apple support because this takes about two hours to fix. All of your devices get signed out. You have to sign in again. You have to sign in about six places on the iPhone. You have to sign in iCloud. You have to sign in again for messages. Another one for the iTunes store. Same thing on the Mac. You have to sign in in iTunes and system preferences and messages. And you also have to recreate app-specific passwords if you're using any of iCloud services for instance, I use a calendar app called Fantastical, and that needs a specific password that has to be signed in on all my devices. In any case, I'm curious to see if Apple figures out what's going on. I put a link in the show notes to an article I put on my website, and I'm going to see if a lot of other people have this problem. I already got one comment. Someone says it often happens on Saturdays. I don't know why this is going on. And this is one of the problems with security, that when security misinterprets what's happening, it can cause a lot of hassle. Um, now, the hassle is worth it because the two-factor authentication means that it's very hard for someone to get into my account. But sometimes it's just a headache, isn't it? Yeah, there's definitely a trade-off between security and convenience and finding that right balance for you. You know, that's something that everybody kind of has to go through. For me, I, of course, you know, being the guy that I am who wears a mask while we podcast and everything, and every time I'm out in public, of course, it's important to me to <clears throat> make things as secure as possible, even if it means that it's, sometimes it's a little inconvenient. Yep. 
So in other news this week, Apple released a few operating system updates and with them security updates. Yeah, that's right. There were a bunch of updates that Apple released. They had updates for macOS, iOS, pretty much all of the, the Apple operating systems. They also had a Safari patch. They updated iCloud for Windows and iTunes 12.8 for Windows. A lot of people don't really realize that Apple has Windows software, but they do make those things available for Windows. And usually whenever they patch those, it's uh, they're patching WebKit, which is kind of this underlying technology that Safari is built upon. So when you use iTunes for Windows, there are certain parts of that interface, like when, when you're loading the store, for example, that are really just loading a web page. And so it's got to have that WebKit technology built into it. It's not just the store. It's also all of Apple Music. And something most people don't realize, it's the sidebar on the left, which is actually displayed by WebKit. Oh, interesting. I, I didn't know that. Yes. So there are several places in iTunes that use WebKit. And, and WebKit is practical because instead of building an interface the way that you do it when you're creating an app, you can do it with just HTML and CSS. It makes it easier to, to change sizes and all that. If the iTunes sidebar is WebKit, then I'm pretty sure the Finder, Photos, and other apps that use a sidebar must be WebKit as well. If you notice, if you go into the System Preferences and the General Preference pane, there is a setting called Sidebar Icon Size, and it gives you three options, small, medium, and large. And this applies across the board to a number of apps, iTunes, mail, calendar, photos. So all these apps must be using WebKit. Really? Now, obviously on Windows, the only one that uses WebKit is iTunes because they don't have the other apps. But on the Mac, WebKit is integrated quite substantially across applications. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I did know that, of course, it was used in other applications, but I hadn't considered that it could actually be used in the Finder uh, interface and things like that. So one element that we've spoken about a few times is this USB restricted mode. And this was rolled out in iOS 11.4.1, but it seems very quickly that people found a way to get around it. Yeah, there was a, an interesting article by Elcomsoft. Uh, and this this is a company that a lot of times digs into, you know, iOS security in particular. They say that with an actual official $39 Apple dongle, you can plug this into an iOS device that has this USB restricted mode and fool the device into thinking that it's in use. And so the, the uh, lockout after an hour of, of not being used won't actually happen, which is really interesting because the, the whole idea behind USB restricted mode is if you don't have access to your device, if you haven't unlocked it for the past hour, then you don't want somebody else to come along and plug a device into it and hack into your device to brute force attack your, you know, try to crack your password and, and, and things like that. So this article from Elcomsoft claims that just with certain Apple dongles, you can just plug them right into any iOS device that has a lightning port and effectively completely bypass USB restricted mode. Yeah, what's interesting in the article is that they point out that some dongles work and some don't. And I think what it is is that some dongles are what you would call smart, that they actually have chips in them, and the chips are drawing power even when nothing's happening. Yeah, the, there's one in particular that they say that's uh, that Apple sells. There's a, a lightning to 3.5 millimeter jack adapter. And this is something that you would get, for example, for your iPhone 10. 
so that you could plug old school headphones in instead of using the wireless headphones. Sorry, you mean real headphones. <laughs> right. Yes. So this is the this is the adapter that comes with the iPhone, in fact. Right. And and, and you can buy another one for nine dollars. But they say this this particular dongle does not defeat USB restrictions just because of how it works, I guess. So it's interesting that this feature, which is so, so important to prevent devices from accessing data on an iPhone, is basically, I don't know, is the word failure proper? Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, this doesn't really protect you then, after all. This failure to do the basic thing that it's advertised to do, if, if you just have a device plugged in. It's kind of stunning that Apple didn't test this with dongles. Well, now that's an interesting point, because what Elcomsoft argues, and I've heard other people argue in, this, in discussing this, is that maybe it's not unintentional behavior, because if you're using certain devices, you probably don't want them to just stop working in the middle of using them. So if you've had something plugged into your iPhone for the past hour and, you know, you're continuing to use it, you don't want it to just stop working at an hour. And then, you you know, it's it, it's a support headache, right? You, you start to wonder, wait, well, what happened? Like something just broke. And then you take it to the Apple store and, you know, waste a bunch of people's time, including your own. And I think that maybe Apple's trying to avoid that. At least that's the theory. And, and maybe that's maybe they actually designed it this way on purpose for that reason. Fair enough. In other news, Apple finally patched something that we talked about in episode number three back <laughs> in October. Yeah, this is crazy. Crack is a key reinstallation attack is what, what Crack stands for. It's a Wi-Fi attack. So a lot of people, again, don't really realize that Apple has Windows software, but another piece of Windows software is, you know, essentially boot camp drivers. Well, technically, it's not Windows software. It's Mac software that allows you to run Windows on a Mac natively. Right. There, there's a boot camp assistant, which comes with your Mac, and you can use this to install a copy of Windows on your Mac. It's something that, I, I don't know, not everybody that I know does this. I, I literally know one person who frequently uses the bootcamp mode. But, you know, some people do. If, if, you, if you need to run Windows a lot on your Mac and maybe a virtual machine like VMware or Parallels Desktop or something like that isn't exactly what you need, then you might actually want to reboot your whole computer and go into the full-on Windows experience on your Mac. And so bootcamp allows you to do that. Well, Apple doesn't frequently update the Windows drivers for Boot Camp, and as, as evidenced by the fact that they're finally patching the crack vulnerability for the Windows side for those who are, who are using Boot Camp. It took them this long. Gosh, what, what is that? You know, it was October. Now it's July. Nine months. Yeah. Well, they've been busy. Give them a break. They came out with a new phone with a notch, and they had other things to do. And, you know, the HomePod, the HomePod was delayed, of course. So you can see that, yeah. that they've, they've been busy <laughs> with something. They, you know, they built that big building. That took a lot of time. Uh-huh. It's not the people who are working on those projects who would be updating the Windows drivers, though. Maybe they were. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to take a deep dive into how antivirus software works. Intego is dedicated to better online safety practices, and the summertime offers a unique opportunity for parents and kids to become more cyber-aware 
and to be better educated about potentially harmful online content and activities. As part of our commitment to protecting children and teens online, Intego is offering a 50% discount with the purchase of our award-winning Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego Mac Premium Bundle X9 is our most feature-rich suite of internet security and backup software for your Mac. It contains everything you need to keep your Mac protected, secure, private, and clean, and includes antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware, two-way firewall network protection, Mac Cleaner to optimize your Mac, personal backup software for quick and easy recovery in case of a crash, parental controls with website and application blocking. You can get Intego's award-winning Mac Premium Bundle X9 for 50% off the suggested retail price by using this promo code at checkout. Premium 50, all one word, no spaces. Premium 50. Have a really safe summer by protecting your computers and your family from internet dangers. Save 50% on Mac Premium Bundle X9 with the promo code Premium 50 at checkout. Visit Intego.com today. So we talk about security. The main thread of this podcast is security and Apple devices, and one of the biggest security threats is malware. And the way to prevent malware from harming you is well, safe computing and and all that you know being protected. But it's also using antivirus software. A lot of people don't understand how antivirus software works, and I thought it would be a good idea that we take a look at Intego Virus Barrier and we look at the different features and explain exactly what this software does. Just before we get going, the the term virus is a problem. Because not all malware is viruses. In fact, on the Mac, it's very, very rare to have a virus, though viruses are common on Windows. Yet everyone talks about antivirus software and virus barrier. If only 30 years ago people had said anti-malware instead malware instead of viruses, we wouldn't have this issue. And a lot of people who comment on computer security take umbrage at the fact that security companies use the term virus as liberally as they do. So when we talk about antivirus software, it's anti-malware. Virus being all of that stuff, and there's lots of different types of malware. So one of the first things to understand about how antivirus software works is what exactly does it do? How does it find malware in your files? Yeah, there's a number of ways that anti-malware software can find these malicious programs running on your computer. Probably most people, when they think of antivirus software, they think of you know. Clicking a button to scan their whole computer, and that's what we call manual scanning. It's something that you have to initiate yourself. But there also is real-time scanning. So what antivirus software does is it scans, it reads every file that your computer either reads or writes. Is that correct? That's correct. So when real-time scanning detects. That there's something on your drive. Let's say, for example, that you go to、um, a website that tries to download some malicious content onto your machine. What it's doing is it's writing that content usually to your hard drive, and as soon as that write process happens, your anti-malware program can identify that and block it from being able to to execute. So that's that's part of what real time scanning is. The、uh, the basic idea behind this is before that software has has any chance of harming your machine, it's already been detected and already been quarantined or deleted. So when we talk about this scanning, we say that antivirus software uses what's called malware definitions. This is 
a, a file, a series of files, a database that has information about malware. How does that work? Does it have like a name and address of the malware? It's like smiley face malware and the file is not going to identify itself as smiley face malware, is it? <laughs> well, there's a number of different ways that signatures work. One way is that it might be looking for a particular hash value, sort of, it's sort of like a footprint. Like it's a way to uniquely identify a particular file. A hash is created by doing some sort of a mathematical operation on all the data in a file. It's like if you multiply all the numbers by each other, you come up with a certain number. And as long as that file hasn't changed or an application hasn't changed, that number will still be the same. Is that correct? Right, right. That's essentially the idea. And that's the basics of kind of signature-based malware detection. You're, you're looking for a particular file that looks the same on everybody's system. Now, malware isn't always that easy to detect. A lot of times there are things like polymorphic malware. Polymorphic malware, the idea behind this is that it adapts itself, it changes itself, and sometimes even just in small ways, just to avoid detection. And so um, it's important also, in addition to just having these basic signatures, you also need to have heuristic detection of malware. Wait, you're telling me this stuff is alive? <laughs> it's alive. That it can actually change itself? <laughs> <laughs> yes, malware, in some cases, yes, sophisticated malware can modify itself. And sometimes it's not even a complicated way. It might just be a very subtle way. Depending on how you're detecting it, it might not take much to modify that file so that a signature isn't just not going to detect it, even though it may behave exactly the same way. And so there's a variety of different ways that heuristics can work. Sometimes it's um, behavioral based. Sometimes it, it looks at um, a particular portion of a file and detects uh, you know, other files that match on that particular portion of the file. There's a number of ways that heuristics work, but the idea behind it is that if a malware creator has developed a variant, you can catch that variant before you have any specific signatures for it, or even without needing to develop specific signatures for that new variant. And that's why sometimes people talk about vaccines, that malware definitions are a sort of vaccine, that they're looking for a class of files that all resemble in certain ways. Maybe 99% of the file is the same across variants, but 1% is different to try and fool the software. Is that it? Right, exactly. And a big part of what malware will often do is try to evade detection, right? I mean, the, the whole, you know, if, if you've got some malicious software... Uh, that you want to get on as many computers as possible, and you know that some people might be running antivirus software, anti-malware software, you're going to want to make sure that your program doesn't get detected. So sometimes malware creators will go to great lengths to make sure that it's not as likely to be detected. Okay, so we've talked about manual scans and real-time scans. There are sometimes you want to run manual scans. Let's say you're just installing the software for the first time. You want to scan your whole computer. But another time is... Let's say you've got an external hard drive and you've been backing up files to it, but it's not always connected to your computer. And you might want to connect it to your Mac once a week. And it's a good idea to scan it because it may have files that were only detected since you last connected it. And the malware definitions were updated since the last scan, right? Right, that's true. And in fact, it, especially if you've got a drive that you share between multiple computers, and maybe some of those other computers might not have antivirus software on them, then it's a great idea to uh, to scan that drive 
at least occasionally, you know, to, to make sure that there's no uh, infection that's gotten onto that drive since the last time you scanned it. So you can do manual scans and real-time scans, and you can also schedule scans of different volumes, disk, and even network volumes. Why would you need to do that? You might want to do a scheduled scan if, let's say, in the example that we gave where you're plugging in an external drive. Maybe you want to just leave that drive plugged in overnight and you know have it start scanning that drive at 1 a.m. or something, um, so that by the time you wake up, it'll be done and you don't have to worry about it. Different antivirus software scans for different types of files. And when I look at the virus barrier preferences, it scans for Mac malware, Windows malware, Linux malware, malicious scripts, hacking tools, and keyloggers. And we've talked about a lot of these different types of malware in the past. Obviously, you don't need to scan for Windows and Linux malware if you're the only person using your Mac. But if you are sharing files on a network volume, you might want to do that to protect other people who are going to be accessing your files, right? That's true. I mean, just because you have a Windows EXE on your Mac, if, if you don't run Windows on your Mac at all, um, then that EXE file is not really going to do anything harmful to your, to your Mac. The reason that I like the idea of an anti-malware program that detects malware for other platforms is just, just to, as you implied there, you don't want your computer to become a host for some malware that potentially at some point in the future could get copied onto some other type of device and could infect that device at that time. So I like the idea of proactively eliminating any Windows, Linux, Android, you know, whatever other malware might happen to get onto your system just so that it never has a chance to spread. And particularly if you're in a business environment where people are using different operating systems, sharing files over a network, it's best that each computer be able to scan for as many different types of files as possible, just in case. Let's say someone's running Windows and they haven't updated their antivirus software, but yours is updated. You can help protect the Windows computer the same way that people get vaccinated to protect other people from catching a disease. So Virus Barrier, when it detects malware, sometimes it offers to quarantine a file. What does that mean? The idea behind quarantining is, well, it's kind of how it sounds, really. I mean, you want to segregate it from everything else, right? It's kind of putting that file or, or process in jail and not allowing it to do anything else until you decide what you want to do with it. So it puts it there until you have time to examine it, because in many cases, files that have malware could be real files that you need for your work. You know, I'm thinking of the days when it was very common to get Word files with macroviruses in them. And you maybe need to read those Word files, but you don't want to open them because of the macroviruses. So when a file is quarantined, you have a number of options. You can delete the file, you can try to repair it, and repairing works in certain cases, but it depends on the malware, it depends on whether it's a file or an application. Or if you really need the file, you get in touch with the person who sent you the file, for example, and say, hey, this file is, is infected and I need the, the real file. That's a great example. In fact, I once actually came across a Mac that was infected with um, word macroviruses. And what happened was evidently they had gotten one document with a word macrovirus in it 
and then this macro had spread to all of their other documents. So everything on their desktop, all of their, you know, their life's work had now become infected with macro viruses. Yeah, in certain cases, if if something good has been in, become infected, then you don't necessarily want to delete it. You would you might want to, to clean it if that option is available um, or at the very least quarantine it in place um, until you have a chance to further assess that file. So another option is whether or not you want to scan archives. Archives are files like zip files, right? You might want to scan these files, but if you have a lot of zip archives, it's going to take a long time to scan them, isn't it? Because they sort of have to be unzipped and scanned. Right. Essentially, uh, the way that scanning a compressed uh, archive will work is, uh, as you say, it'll, it'll actually extract everything from that archive and scan those files individually because that's really what you have to do um, in, in order to, uh, to see what's inside of that file. You've got to pull those things out and scan them. And this all happens in the background. It's not like it's, you know, unzipping your, your zip file and just leaving it there. Yeah, you don't see windows in the finder opening with your files. No, not at all. Um, th this is something that, that very much is, is a background process, but uh, as you say, it can take longer, but I would say that if you are doing, let, let's, let's say you just installed your antivirus software and you want to scan your, your whole machine just to do a one-time, you know, scan everything and see what you can find. That's a great time to enable archive scanning because you may have stuff that maybe isn't unzipped on your computer, but may live in an archive and you don't want your Mac harboring some malware that just happened to be in a zip file when you scanned your drive. Right. And if you're doing this the first time, you might want to do this overnight because some of these archives and disk images can be quite large. Take, for example, some software that you might download that comes in a disk image. It's a couple of gigabytes. Well, if the antivirus software is going to scan the entire disk image, this takes a long time because inside the disk image, the files are compressed. So you don't want to necessarily have this going when you're working. Do it overnight. Then maybe you'll turn off the archive scanning, but you'll be sure that everything's clean. And if you have real-time scanning on, then you'll know that anything new that you open or download will be protected. So there's also a trusted files section. And when you put files in the trusted files area, this means that Virus Barrier will not scan them, right? Why would you want to do that? That doesn't sound very safe. I would consider this an expert feature. So if, if you know that there's a particular folder that you don't ever want you know, your anti-malware product to, to touch. As a security researcher, I've, I've got a folder that's loaded to the brim with malware files that I don't want to get automatically removed by real-time scanning because I need to use those for, you know, AV testing and things like that. Your average user probably does not want to use it for that purpose. <laughs> if you if you have malware on your machine, you want your antivirus program to get rid of it. But another thing that you can do, and again, this would be a pretty rare case and, and kind of an, uh, you'd need an expert to help you make this decision if you're not an expert yourself, would be a case where maybe there's something that is detected as a potentially unwanted program, but you know that you've legitimately installed it and there is a purpose for having this program on your Mac. In that case, you may also want to add that as a trusted file. Right, so it's something that's not getting detected as malware perhaps by its signature, but maybe it has a certain type of behavior that for your use is totally normal and you're aware that it's normal, but that trips up 
antivirus software just because it's doing something that is uncommon. So just to close, we've talked about these malware definitions before. How are they created? How do you all take that folder of all your malware samples? How do you find this malware? What goes on behind the curtain to create these malware definitions? There's a lot of questions there. Well, how, how do you find malware? There's a number of different sources. Certainly, you know, sometimes um, users will, will report, hey, um, I found this weird file on my computer and I've run it through every antivirus program I can think of and, and it's not detected, but I'm pretty sure this is malicious. And sometimes uh, users will actually reach out to antivirus companies and, and, and ask for help analyzing this file. And um, sometimes brand new malware that's even been in, in existence for a number of years in, in some rare cases will be discovered that way. I, I can't think of the, the name of it, but I, I know a few months ago, something similar to that happened with uh, some Mac malware that was reported by um, somebody who worked at a university. Um, They just contacted an antivirus company and said, hey, I I found this. Nothing's detecting it. Can you help me and see if this is, you know, something malicious? And sure enough, it turned out it was. That'll happen from time to time. Another way that uh, is just proactive research, right? Um, So when you might come across a website from time to time that is trying to push malware onto your computer. It says, oh, you need Flash updated, and then it gives you you know, a download uh, link or it forces that download onto your computer. And a lot of times when that kind of thing happens, it's not really Flash Player that's updating. It's really uh, some link that you clicked on maybe redirected to some scam page, and now it's trying to infect your computer. Um, and there are ways that researchers can be proactive about finding those new samples and uh, and and creating signatures for them. I'm going to include a link in the show notes to a webpage on the Intego website that is called Submit Malware. You can enter your name, your email address, comments, and you can select a file that you can send to Intego if you think you've come across any malware. Because this is one of the ways that security researchers find malware. You can't be scanning everyone's computer all the time, right? <laughs> you don't do that. Well, do maybe I do. Oh, no, come on. Not really. No. I think it's important to realize that there is a lot of trust involved here, but also that there is a very large community of security researchers. They pool the malware that they find so other people can access it. They're constantly sharing samples. No one really owns the malware that's discovered, even though... One company will find something and they'll want to say that they were the one that found it initially, but then this is all shared. So there is a, there are a number of companies and independent researchers and even universities that do security research that share all this information and that gets all reassembled so that every security company can update their malware definition. Something that might surprise, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of everyday users of these programs. But you know, the researchers at these companies don't generally don't hate each other. Like we're we're usually friends and and work uh, very well with each other across companies. And uh, you know, it, it, detecting and finding new samples and and analyzing them is a passion for for many people and. And uh, we have a lot of friends in the industry who work at other companies. So we definitely do work with each other in that way. So to go further, I'm including a couple of articles in the show notes. One is called, What Does Your Antivirus Scanner Do Under the Hood? And that goes into more detail about the actual way that the antivirus software reads files and what it looks for. And another one that talks about how the antivirus is only one element of a multi-pronged security strategy to keep you safe. Until next week, Josh, let's both stay secure. All right, stay secure, Kirk. 
Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.